The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Good news for some of you, we're finally at verse 20. So we can move on about Jesus and the law, right? So let's open up our Bibles and go to Matthew 5, and we'll read verses 17 through 20. And Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets, or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, she shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 20, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the great parallel verse, or that can explain to us a little bit more what Jesus meant by verse 20, if we turn to Luke 18, and there's a parable that teaches us something about what Jesus is really saying in verse 20 as well. In Luke 18, verse 9, it says, This is Jesus speaking. He says, also, he spoke this parable parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Here's some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, they were self-righteous. So basically, that's a religion of human achievement. I guess... Some of the scribes forgot what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6. It's not on the, on the slide, but do you guys remember the verse where it says, we're all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags? But here are some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and not only they were righteous, but they also despised others. And then he continues in verses 10 through 12 and says, two men went up to the temple and pray, One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Pharisees were the most religious people in their society of their day. And he wasn't lying when he says, I tithe of everything. I mean, you know, they even counted like mint leaves, you know. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me. One for Jesus. One for God. They they fasted twice a week. He wasn't lying. And by the way, in the Old Testament, you're required to fast once a year. So doing it twice a week, really he's 103 times more than he was supposed to. But on the other hand, in verse 13, there's this tax collector. So we see the self-righteous person. And then the tax collector, standing afar off, would not as much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, 
be merciful to me, sinner. A contrast here. The tax collector was the least respected man in Jewish society. He was a tax collector. He was a Jew that worked for Rome. He collected and demanded taxes and sometimes took more than he needed from his own people. He was hired by Rome and he was the ultimate kind of traitor. They were despised by their society because they opted out for money. They forsook their nationalism, if you would. They, they forgot their religion, all for money. And this tax collector is in the corner beating his breast and saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. So what's the point of the story? Well, Jesus gives us the point in verse 14. And he says, I tell you this. I tell you this man went down to his house, talking about the tax collector, to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is the story about a bad man that went to heaven and a good man that went to hell. And the average person who reads this Luke 18, these verses, really don't quite understand it because most people think good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, right? Isn't that the thing? But this man is in the corner beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. He's really admitting that he is classed to go to hell. On the other hand, with someone who doesn't extort, commit adultery, fast twice a week, give tithes of all he possesses, super religious, that person is certainly on the way to heaven, right? And most people in our society today, too, think that if you're good enough, you'll get there. If you're bad, you won't. Simple question, ask people, how do you think you get to heaven? They're saying by being good, right? Well, ask a follow-up question. How good do you have to be? Very good. Well, how very good is very good? Well, it's, you have to be very, very good. But the best people of all society of Israel, the very best, Jesus says, if you don't exceed their righteousness of this religious folks, you are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven because it's based on their goodness. In the worst in Israel society, that's why I think Jesus used the, the best and the worst, the tax collector, he went home justified. So what's the criteria? What's Jesus saying here? How are you going to go get to heaven? You're going to have to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. In verse 20 says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus came along, if we just go back and do a recap of the verses 17 through 20. Jesus comes along. And his teaching was someone radical for people. His teaching wasn't like the leaders of their day, the Pharisees, 
Sadducees and scribes. It was very different. Because all of those leaders or teachers were always dealing with the external. When Jesus is teaching, he's always talking about the internal. And he comes and says, well, wait a minute. Maybe Jesus is going to lower the standard. But in verse 17, he says, no, do not think I came to destroy the Lord of prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So I'm not getting rid of the Old Testament. I'm not lowering the Old Testament. It was authored by God. It was affirmed by the prophets, and it's going to be fulfilled by me. It's the highest source of revelation. It's the complete authority. And then he says in verse 18, we talked about the permanence. How long does this law last? Well, he says, for surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot and one tittle will by no mean pass from the law till all is fulfilled. He came to show that the law would not pass away. It would not be lowered. No one could come and do away with it. It had to be fulfilled in every sense of it. And he is, he fulfilled some parts, he's still fulfilling some, and he will fulfill some in the future. And remember when Christ came the first time, that was a prophecy. Well, he's going to come the second time. That's going to be the fulfillment too. So we talk about the preeminence of the law, the highest, the best. We talk about the permanence. And then he says that it's binding on the hearts of men. In verse 19, he says, Whoever there breaks one of these least commandments and teaches men, so shall he be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called the great in the kingdom of heaven. And finally, it leads us to verse 20. In verse 20, really gives us the purpose of this law, the whole thing. Why does he give us these standards? Why is he not lowering them? What's the purpose? And he gives it to us in verse 20, not necessarily by saying it, but by implying it. Look again. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what's the purpose? The purpose of God's law is to show us, to you and I, you had to be more righteous than you could come up with on your own. Just like those righteous people of their day. You have to be more righteous than you can come up with on your own. That's the point. That's the purpose. And Paul writes to Galatians, says, Therefore the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was a disciplinarian to bring us to Christ. The law was the perfect standard which will show us our sin. That was the purpose. The law was to show we couldn't do it on our own, that even the best, the scribes and the Pharisees, with all their religious and ceremonial things and rituals, they could not gain the righteousness that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you want it simply, I was thinking the law was given us with a purpose just to frustrate us, showing us how inadequate we are. Kind of like the in-laws, right? Just kidding. The law was to tell us how good we are. No, it wasn't there to tell us how good we are. 
Yeah, the law is there to show us how rotten we are. That's why the man in the corner where we read the tax collector in the book of Luke, he's over there in the corner saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. He went home justified because he responded to what God's law was intended to do in the first place. The other man, the Pharisee who was self-righteous, did not see the meaning of God's law for he never responded to what God intended. And because of there's this phony system that sometimes even people our days create, Jesus wanted it to be known that from the very beginning, the standard of righteousness that he required, that God requires from us, is not available under any type of system. And the law came with the purpose to show us that the very best men among us could make it into the kingdom of heaven. The very best people that were there at the society at the time, they couldn't cut it. The kindness, the best, the noblest, most religious people, if they were dependent upon their own goodness, they were automatically excluded from the kingdom. He says, except your righteousness exceeds the scribes, Pharisees, you can't come into the kingdom. You can't even be a part of it. That is the standard of true righteousness. Well, how do we get there? Well, let's go back to Matthew 5.3. Let's go back through all these verses. 5.3 said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The religious system at the time was not poor in spirit. It was proud, boastful, arrogant, feeling that they already arrived somewhere. Have you ever felt that you arrived somewhere spiritually? Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, they weren't mourning, were they? They were just blowing their own horn, their own self-sufficiency, patting themselves on the back instead of mourning in the corner like the tax collector. They were probably looking in the mirror and singing how great they are, right? And then Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They weren't meek again. They were boastful. They're not teachable. In verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger, thirst, and for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Well, they weren't hungry because they already were filled. They thought they had it already. In Matthew 5, 7, it says, Blessed are the merciful, should they abstain mercy. Were they merciful to other people? No. They weren't pure in heart in verse 5, 8 for they shall see God. They were white on the outside, but filthy and wretched on the inside. Were they peacemakers, as verse 5, 9 says? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. No, they didn't make any peace. They set themselves up above everybody else, created division among the people. In verses 13 to 16, where it talks about salt and earth, no, no. So Jesus is running right smack into the system of his day, into this legalism of the hour, and said, the man gets to heaven, gets to kingdom based on his own goodness. And Jesus says, no, you don't. It's when you recognize your own wretchedness. When you look at the law and you act like the tax collector not how good you are. 
because nobody can keep the law. But they were thinking, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were good. So there must be something wrong with the law. So what they start doing? Started changing the law. They came up with a whole bunch of their own traditions that they could live up to. We're good. So we're just going to accommodate the standard, bring it down a little bit to where we can keep it. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. So looking at this verse, I know most of you know who the scribes and the Pharisees are. But if our righteousness has to exceed theirs, who were they? Really? Scribes were, they're the ones that really dealt with the letter of the law. They're the ones that wrote down the law, studied the law. They were the scholars, the authorities of the law. They're the ones who struggled with the fine points of the law. There was other sects in there, Sadducees. They were the theological liberals, if you were. The Pharisees were the theological conservatives. And the scribe's job was to simply copy the law, study the law, get basic text down, and interpret the law, and so forth. And these scribes are basically became the rabbis of today. They really were the forerunners for the rabbis. And scribes did spend their entire lives in the text of the Old Testament. They were the official scholars, if you would. Well... And it's an office, like the rabbis have an office. Pharisee doesn't really have an office. Uh, it was a sect within the Judaism. And we know there were several sects because everybody expected the Messiah to come back, but Jews different were on how the Messiah is going to come back and how, what they need to do in order for Messiah to come back. So for the Zealots, they were the political radicals. There were another group called the Essenes to live in the mountains and next to the Dead Sea, pretty much the hippies over there, they kind of away from, they were almost like mystical. They had this monastery type of order. But the mainstream were the two groups were the Sadducees and Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the conservatives, and the, really the Pharisee word means to separate. They were the separatists the super-duper fundamental legalists of their day, the fundamental Baptists. They separated from everything. They separated from Gentiles. They would not go near them. They didn't want to be defiled. They separated themselves from any Jew that held uh, the law less than they did. They convinced themselves that they were really spiritual hotshots. But they differed from the scribes because they didn't spend that much time as a scribe would in studying God's word or the law. So the scribes could really be in anything. They could be a Sadducee, they can be a Pharisee. They didn't have to identify with either. But the Pharisees took the word of God and developed this rigid ceremonial ritualistic system not based on the law of Moses, but it was on tradition because they couldn't keep the law of Moses. 
And I said earlier, I believe, you know, you can't keep that righteousness, then what do you do? You just change the standard. You change the standard by accommodating it to your own righteousness. So a lot of people that can't live up to the biblical standard, they drag the standard down where they can make it. But Jesus says, I didn't come to lower any of that or get rid of it. And really, if we admit that the standard is the Word of God and it's absolutely true, which I do, you can't live up to it. And knowing that should drive you crazy. So there has to be an answer, and their answer was to lower it. They created all kinds of rules, which they could keep less, and which ones they had to keep. So and then they were in society, and keeping all these rules and showing on the outside that they were holy. So everybody in the society thought the most holiest person closest to God is a Pharisee. So for average folks, and that's the problem we have today, sometimes we hold pastors on a pedestal or so forth, and we think, oh, that person is so holy and so forth. You should never, that's a false standard. You know, I believe pastors and so forth should be a good example, but the standard is Jesus Christ himself. So, you know, you know, I kind of mentioned in men's study, and I almost got eaten up a little bit. You know, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ and so forth. Yes, we should be good examples, but you see, Paul, the greatest Christian ever lived, he's still not the standard. The standard is Jesus Christ. So I always say you want to compare yourself to Paul, you'll say, well, I can never be to Paul, like Paul. And you give up. You give up. This Christian life is too hard. Or you can compare yourself to the tax collector and you become too proud because you're measuring yourself to the false standards. But if you compare yourself to Jesus Christ, even if Paul compared himself to Jesus Christ, he's going to say, be merciful to me, sinner. There's only one conclusion. And the best people aren't going to make it. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds, in verse 20 again, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So these scribes spend night and day studying the word of God. If anybody knew the Word of God or how to translate or, you know, explain it, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. So that's who they were. But then he says you have to have to exceed their righteousness. Well, who can do that? So what kind of righteousness did they really have? What was the nature of righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? If we're going to find out what true righteousness is, and it has to be more than theirs, well, what was theirs? What were they depending on their salvation? Well, first of all, I want to talk about it was external. It's more like 
look what I've done. I do this, I fast twice a week, I tithe, we're holy on the outside, and they developed a whole system that they could keep. You know, most of you know I like history, but when they found the tomb of King Tut, which is the most perfect tomb that they could, in the history that was found of any pharaoh, it was the greatest discovery in 1924, but when they found his coffin, the tomb, there was this large golden coffin. They opened it. And guess what was inside there? Another beautifully decorated golden coffin. Then they opened that and so forth. It's like a Russian doll, if you would. And they finally got down to it where... You see this body, and the body is wrapped in this gold linen, and he has that gold mask on it. I'm sure you've seen it. And then they took that apart and unwrapped it. All was inside was just dead men's bones. So their religion, their righteousness, was kind of just beautiful on the outside. You see, they didn't get involved in adultery, theft, murder. But they had a lot of impure, rotten thoughts. They coveted like mad. They hated with a fury. They're cold in their hearts towards God. Think about it. They were never murder anybody. Even when they brought Jesus at the end, who, who, who crucified Jesus? The Romans did, right? Because our law prevents us from murdering anybody. So we're going to use the hands of somebody else to do the actual work. How many times we see when Jesus walked past them, he saw their hearts and they wanted to stone him and so forth. We're not murderers. But in their hearts, they were rotten. Inside was all fouled up. The outside you're able to maintain right? I know I look pretty and all dressed up. And by the way, thank you for some of you that were praying for me because last Sunday, I don't know what happened when I was preaching. I know I was wearing a suit too and I looked good, but on the inside, whew, I was blacking out here. I don't know what hit me, but I got sick and I couldn't even remember what I was preaching on. But that's the thing. On the outside, we all look good. And I say this all the time, you all look Christian in here today. And when you enter the house, you speak Christianese. Hi, brother. Hi, sister. But how is it on the inside? And that's what Jesus was illustrating over and over in Matthew 5, 21, 22 says, you have heard it was said to the old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. And a lot of people say, well, that's the Old Testament, and here's the new law. No. It's the same thing. Jesus is just expanding what it really meant. And verse 20 says, But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of counsel. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. You're already a murderer if you got hatred in your heart. I never killed anybody yet. 
but I am a murderer according to God's law. Look at Matthew 5.27 says, You have heard it said to those old, you should not commit adultery. Remember all those people caught the woman in adultery? They wanted to stone her. But Jesus says, But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust, for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So you're living a system of external observances, but what God is concerned with is what's on the inside. He's never concerned with externals because whatever is on the internal will reflect on the external. But whatever is on the external does not always necessarily reflect what's on the internal. And in Matthew 23, 25 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortions and self-indulgence. In other words, you're great on the outside, but you don't do anything with the inside. And you know, the problem with some churches, and I agree to an extent, when I use this illustration, you know, when people come to God, they, they want them to dress a certain way. They want them to act a certain way. They want them to carry a Bible to church. So they're concerned with all these things, how you should look like on the outside. And folks, I'm not 100% for that because as the leader or a pastor, you see, those things, if you're a true born-again Christian, those things will automatically start changing in, in the person because they're changing on the inside. So if I see these things and they continue on for years on the outside, what does that tell me? That tells me they were never changed on the inside. And that should be a concern. So the outside would automatically reflect what's on inside, but not the other way around. Not the other way around. And he says in Matthew 23, 26, blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish. And look at that. It says, then the outside of them may be clean also. So if you really truly clean up inside, the outside will automatically be clean. But then he continues in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like a whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outward, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And that's what we forget, folks. We forget, you know, in front of other people, oh, he's so righteous. He's a good Christian, comes from a good family. He can't see inside the heart. And we forget there's one that can. And that's the danger. Sometimes people play along thinking they can fool people, and they can. But those people ain't going to save you on day of judgment. They forget that God sees the inside. 
you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness on the inside. It's pretty straight stuff, wouldn't you say? You're rotten on the inside, though you cleaned up on the outside. And folks, we need to examine our own heart in this regard because it's easy for us to get wrapped up in the superficial kind of religion. Do you know that? It's very easy for us to go through the motions of prayer. I know most of you, some of you have morning routines where you go through that. And you kind of do a check mark. But you see, there's a danger of that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But, but danger is because you think you go into the motions of prayer, reading the Bible, attending church, going to Bible study, there isn't nothing going on in the inside. Do you see what I'm saying? Just because you read your Bible doesn't make you go to heaven. If you're rotten on inside, you don't do whatever it says. If you don't say, God, be merciful to me, sinner. Life can be superficial. The people had it all on the outside. But on the inside, it wasn't there. You know, it's interesting. When they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You remember they asked Jesus that? Jesus didn't give them an answer of some internal external, I'm sorry, thing. He didn't say you must go to synagogue every Sabbath or you might tithe like they did, you know. He said this in Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus said to him, you shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, I don't know about you, but that's all internal. And when you do that, out of, the, out of that thing, if you love your God with all your being, all other things will flow. You will tithe, but you're not tithing to be saved. You're tithing because you are saved. You will show mercy, not because you're you know, boastful and you have the authority, but you're going to show mercy because you were shown mercy. And is this some new concept that Jesus is teaching? Absolutely not. Look at Deuteronomy 6.5. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. See, Jesus is just repeating what God has already authored in the Old Testament. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they missed it. They're trying to lift themselves, as you say, by their own bootstraps. In Galatians 2.16, it says, Knowing that the man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even when he had believed in Christ Jesus, that he might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. See, it's not a new concept. It's already in the Old Testament. You cannot be justified by the law or the flesh. It's impossible. So externals were fruitless, useless. But not only their righteousness was all external, that's fine. But they, did they keep all of it externally? No. It was partial. Look in verse 23. 
of Matthew 23. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have neglected the weighter matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you have done without leaving the others undone. See, they didn't want to show mercy, right? They didn't want to have justice. Faith. Well, by faith, everybody is equal. They were self-righteous. So the point he's making here is they were really big on the little things and external things, but they ignored other things of the law. It was partial. It was done to accommodate themselves. And we think we're good enough. Well, how good is very good, right? Do we keep all these things? Their ritual religion was just made to fit their own capability by keeping the traditions that they themselves invented they decided this is serving God but Jesus rebuked them and corrected them in Mark 7 verses 7 through 9 says and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men they're teaching doctrines as commandments of men For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold a tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you keep your tradition. Imagine that. They abandoned the law of God so they could live up to it, so invented their own. But not only it was all external and partial, it was really... Redefine. What am I better redefine? The, the scribes who studied the law, they took the law, looked at what it and said, and they said, well, yes, that's what God said, but what he meant was, so that's why sometimes in men's Bible study, you know, some I always correct people when they say, well, what this means to me, uh uh-uh. Not what it means to you when you study the Scripture, but what does it mean? Anybody can interpret the Scripture. It means this to me. It means that to me. That's not the way it works. What does the Scripture mean? So they redefined it to their own comprehension. And it's interesting In Leviticus 11.44, it says that God is holy and that you need to be holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And then Peter picked up on it in 1 Peter 1.15. It says, but he who called you is holy. So if God called me, God is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. So the scribes took that. Well, you can never be as holy as God, right? So let's let's translate that. What he meant to say was, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men. And then they recite their own holiness. That's what that means being as holy as God. 
but the standard of holiness was God. And Matthew 5.48 says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the Scripture was saying to him, you are to be holy as God, as a perfect God. You have to be perfect as he is. So they redefined all these things by lowering the standard. Not only it was redefined, but really it was self-centered. They gained their own righteousness by themselves. They did it on their own. It's self-centered. But Paul wrote to Ephesians in Ephesians 2, in verses 8 through 9, it says, For by grace you are been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, as a gift of God... Not of works. Why is it not of works? Why is it not self-centered? Lest anyone should boast. But they boasted because they had their own righteousness. Do you know what's wrong with self-righteousness? It's like trying to fill a bottomless cup. You ever have one of those? You see, you're supposed to have bottomless cup, and you start filling it and filling it, one of those spaghetti things, you know, we've been talking about when you drain the water. Try to fill up one of those things. You never fill it up. It has no bottom. Trying to fill yourself with your self adds nothing to yourself because nothing plus nothing equals what? Nothing. Some of you look confused like, I didn't know I was going to do math this morning. That's what self-centered righteousness is. They were the scribes and the Pharisees with righteousness that was external, partial. They redefined it. It was self-centered. Okay. Well, our righteousness has to be higher than that. So what's the righteousness that Christ requires here? Christ says absolute holiness, absolute perfection, internal and external righteousness. You keep the God of law on the outside, but you also have to be glorious on the inside. The standard of righteousness that Christ sets is absolute righteousness. Because we're reading Samuel 16, 7. It tells us that, for the Lord does not see a man as sees. Man sees. For man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So how good I must be to get into heaven? You must be as good as God. How perfect do I have to be to enter the kingdom of heaven? You have to be perfect as he is. How holy do I have to be to get into the kingdom of heaven? You have to be holy just like he is. And 1 Peter 1.16 says, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, if you interpret that law correctly, you'll say, Well, no matter how religious I am, I can't do any of that on my own. I can't be as holy, as righteous as a perfect God. So the next question becomes, I want to go to heaven. How do I obtain that kind of righteousness? And remember, we read in 5.4 that 
We must hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you do that, you will be filled. But you look at it and say, I can't do it on my own. I can't be more righteous, folks, than even the scribes and the Pharisees, really, right? Because we look at the external and we're like, wow, I can't give 10% all the time of everything. I can't fast twice a week. I can't do all those things. And you know, when Jesus was speaking these things, even the disciples had some questions. Because they were raised in this society that taught and showed that the Pharisees and the scribes, they were most holiest people ever. Right? Look at Matthew 19, 25. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? <laughs> who then can be saved? Well, there's a wonderful story to tell you. In Galatians 2, 16, and saying, knowing that the man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not be by the work of the law. For by the work of the law, no flesh shall be justified. How are we then justified? By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How are we made righteous? By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3 Verses 21 22 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. See that? Apart from the law. Law is not going to make you righteous. It just shows you how wicked you are. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And then verse 22 says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law. You can't attain the righteousness of God by trying on your own flesh to keep the law. And then he says, it's available to all who believe. Isn't that great? Where do I get that kind of righteousness? By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, did Abraham keep the law? How did, how did he get to heaven? Old Testament saint, Romans 4.3 says, for what the scripture does say, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Well, how righteous did Abraham have to be? He had to be just as holy as God. He had to be righteous as him and perfect as him. Well, he committed a lot of sin if you read his story. You're right. He could never attain that kind of character on his own. But that's not the point. It says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted him for righteousness. Now again, when you believe God and you're born again, you're going to turn away from your previous life. Going a Christian does not make you sin less, but you will sin less. Because you don't want that lifestyle. It's not the perfection of your life, but it always says it's the direction. And in Romans 5, 17, it says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through one. Who's that one? Muhammad, 
Buddha, Confucius. Who's that one? Jesus Christ. You see, the one who demands perfect righteousness, he's the one that gives perfect righteousness. You can't earn it, can't buy it. It's a gift. And if you want to reach out and take it, you can. His righteousness is offered to all. And Romans 5.21 says, So that sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, folks, <coughs> excuse me, all of this is in the Old Testament. But somehow the scribes and the Pharisees that studied the law day and night, they missed it. In Romans 8, 4, Paul writes, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he finally figured it out. He writes to Romans, says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, all this external stuff, but according to the Spirit. That's a tremendous concept, folks. But Jews, on the other hand, they were ignorant. And Paul tells them this. He was one of them. In Romans 10.3, he writes, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. They were ignorant of the standard. They went about establishing their own righteousness. And when you do that, you fail to submit to God's standard, his righteousness. Christ, who is in the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, you know, when I say that to people, you know, the typical response I get for people that are truly interested and they're listening and having a civil conversation, not like one of those politician debates, <clears throat> they say just, it's too simple for them. You mean all I have to do is just believe in Jesus, and that's it. Well, that's what the Bible says. Now, if you truly believe in Jesus, your lifestyle will change, but yes. It's so gloriously simple that a lot of people just miss it. They miss it. I have to do something, right? Don't I have to do good works? Sure. The Bible says you do good works so other people will see and praise the name of God. But you see, I do good works not because to be saved, I do good works because I am saved. And his righteousness is imputed to us through him. In 1 Corinthians one thirty, it says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. So he's wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus is our righteousness. So when God looks at Corne or Corny Petarenko, you know, I was kind of 
since it's their anniversary, I was kind of thinking, how come I got the, how come I got the weird name? You know, we have five kids, Mikhail, Michael, Paul, middle me, then Angelina, Tim, all normal names, right? What, what happened? I stopped correcting people anymore, you know? Even in the Bible, the angels had normal names, Ma. You know, Gabriel and Michael and so forth. The angels probably looking at him corny, like, what? But anyway, sorry. It's their anniversary, so I got to tease them a little bit. But when you're in Christ, and even though I'm not perfect, I'm not sinless, but because his righteousness is imputed to me, when God looks at me right now, he sees me holy. He sees me righteous. Not because of anything I've done, I mean nothing I've done, but because Jesus suffered, bled, and died on, paid my penalty on the sin of the cross, and he imputed that righteousness to me. And because of Jesus Christ, I put my faith in him. And that's where it comes from. And I'm undefiled as Christ. That's my standing before God. How good does a man have to be to get to heaven? He has to be as good as God. How do you get to be as good as God? Only one way. Only one way. Surrendering to him. Acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. Sometimes people say, I made, I made Christ my Lord and Savior. He's already Lord. You just have to acknowledge him, who he is and who you are. And the Bible says the righteousness for Christ is imputed to you. And what happens if you don't obtain this righteousness that is, as in verse 20 he says, exceeds the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees? Well, the answer is pretty simple. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, there's lots of religions out there today that require works, that require do some things. I'll just pick on the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. Not to go with that they're theologically incorrect, but there's requirement, right? You have to go knock on so many doors, regardless if people accept your word or message, but you just have to go and knock. You know, one time I was working on the yard and they came over, and I started talking to Christ about them. They start backed off. But then they said, hey, can we still help you out by doing some yard work for you? I said, no. I don't need any help. Like, well, you got a lot of mulch. We can help you out. You think by helping me doing some mulch, by doing some good work, you're going to get it to heaven? That's their concept. By being good. But unless your righteousness exceeds the external, partial, or self-centered, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter how religious you are, how good you are, you will be excluded from the kingdom. And there's a lot of religious people, but not a lot of regenerated people. So what we need to do is examine our own life. 
Are we really righteous? Or is this just a ritual, a habit we formed? Our family always went to church on Sundays. We always did this. I know most of you are Christians, but are you born again? You know, sometimes they, people ask, are you a born-again Christian? Well, really, <laughs> there's only one kind of true Christian. But people messed up that name so much, there's a lot of people call themselves Christians but are not. Maybe some of you perhaps never really given your life to him. You're standing on your own righteousness, but it's fruitless. You can't get into heaven. You know, I read a story of a man who had a dream. and He went to the gates of heaven, and there was people there trying to get into heaven, and someone knocked. Somebody says, who's there? What's the password? And the man at the pearly gate said, I'm a righteous man. I'm a moral man. And he said, good. What's the password? He says, honesty. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Another man decided to give it a try. He knocked and he says, who's there? What's the password? Well, I'm a religious man. I served in church for all these years. What's the password? Ritual? Religion? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. And the last one came and knocked and said, who seeks entrance into heaven? What's the password? And in the story, I'm sure you guys know this song. He says, this man said, in my hand, no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Rock of Ages. Some of you know that hymn. But there's a wonderful prayer in that hymn. Nothing in my price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And the gates of heaven opened up and said, you may enter in. That's what the Lord meant when he said, For I say to you, unless the righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will know means enter the kingdom of heaven. So I often say this too. Sometimes people or hold pastors on the high level, and we have a tendency in our country to make celebrities out of pastors, which is biggest mistake, I think, that can happen anywhere. And that becomes the standard for their righteousness. I believe I should be an example for the people I pastor. But folks, I am no standard for what you should be measuring yourself to. Righteousness is God. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross I cling, Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the mountain, I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Really, that to me is a prayer. You came in nothing, you're going to leave with nothing. He is our righteousness. And if you pray that prayer, God will wash you, he will cleanse you, and he will give you the righteousness you can never attain on your own, a righteousness for now and forever. And that's the only righteousness 
that will get you in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.